All right, let's get into the scriptures this morning. We are still in the book of Matthew, forever in the book of Matthew. Uh, Matthew chapter 16. Matthew chapter 16 together this morning. You like my title? You can tell I have a three-year-old these days. Yucky yeast is the title of this message. Matthew chapter 16, we will be looking at verses 1 through 12. I'm reading and preaching from the NIV this morning. Start reading now in Matthew 16, verse 1. It says, The Pharisees and Sadducees came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. Jesus replied, When evening comes, you say, It'll be fair weather, for the sky is red. And in the morning, you say, Today it'll be stormy, for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. And when they came across the lake, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this amongst themselves and they said, it's because we didn't bring any bread. (laughs) Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, you have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many baskets you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered them? How is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread? But be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against yeast used in bread, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and Sadducees. Oh, now I get it. This is God's word. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your living and active fully authoritative, true, and inerrant, wonderful, life-giving word before us. And we thank you, Holy Spirit, that you are the teacher of all things. Jesus said that you would come and you'd live in us and you'd be with us and you'd be in our world and you would teach us all truth and lead us into all truth that we might glorify Jesus. Please do that in our hearts and minds this morning. Give us soft, receptive hearts. Give us sharp, responsive minds. Help us, Lord, to understand, to remember, to see clearly, and to respond obediently to your word. We ask together that you would please, by grace, anoint me to teach and preach now in a way that's faithful to the Bible, helpful to the church, and brings glory to Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, Jesus says here in this funny interaction to his disciples that they ought to be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The yucky yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Jesus uses that phrase, be on guard. Now, that that is conflict language. Be on guard. That's like combat grammar, right? Like, be on guard. 
It's some strong, strong language that Jesus is using here. It makes me think of 1 Peter chapter 5, verses 8 and 9, where the word says to us, stay alert. Watch out for your great enemy, the devil. He prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Stand firm against him and be strong in your faith. There's the same sort of language, similar sort of grammar. This is conflict sort of language, battle type of grammar. And this reminds us of something that we often forget in our lives of becoming disciples of Jesus. As followers of Jesus, we often forget this simple fact that we actually live in battle. That we live in a state of battle. That we have as Christians, as Jesus followers, a warfare sort of existence. Because, as this text says, we have a real enemy. And there's a real conflict in which we are engaged. And so the Christian life Part of the metaphor here is, is, is a battle life, an existence, a warfare. We have a real enemy, and we're to be aware of that and to be alert. Ephesians chapter 6, as you well know, says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in his mighty power. Put on the full armor of God so that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil and heavenly realms. So there is within the Christian life a real conflict. There is real battle because we have a real enemy, some actual opposition in our endeavor to follow Jesus, to walk in truth, and to be light and salt in this world. Now, Jesus experienced that as he was discipling his disciples in the Gospels. We've already seen all sorts of confrontations between Jesus and demons, between Christ and the devil, all sorts of confrontations here in the book of Matthew. And this text before us, perhaps surprisingly for you, is also a confrontation with a kind of evil. This is a confrontation with a kind of evil from what would have been for the disciples an unexpected source, the Sadducees and the Pharisees. For we who read the Bible frequently, it's kind of an expected source. We've already read the end of the story. We know that they were kind of the bad guys, or at least the antagonists in the Gospel of Matthew. But for the disciples at this point in their journey, it would have been a little unexpected that this type of evil, this yucky yeast, came from that source, the Pharisees and Sadducees. And this yucky yeast is one that is directly affecting the disciples here. And that's why Jesus has this interaction with them. That's why he gives them this warning. This yeast, whatever it is, is directly affecting them. It's affecting the way that they think and the way that they act toward Jesus. And so Jesus said to them, be on guard Combat language. Be on guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and Sadducees. So what is this evil influence, this yucky yeast that we're talking about that we are supposed to be on guard against? Well, let's back up and get a little context and answer the question, who exactly are the Pharisees and Sadducees? We've seen them a lot 
in the Gospels, but let's drill down a little bit on who they are to get a little more cultural understanding. The Pharisees and the Sadducees were, generally speaking, the religious leaders of Israel during the time of Jesus. And it was basically a two-system party in Israel, even as it is in America today. We have the Democrats and the Republicans. They had the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And they made up something called the Sanhedrin. And the Sanhedrin was a ruling body of elders in Israel that governed and oversaw and directed the religious and social life of Israel. They directed the religious and social life of Israel. Sort of a a, a loose analogy to Congress, you know, and how it directs our lives and our nation. And there's a a two-system party. It's similar to that, but it didn't so much have to do with politics, though that certainly was a part of it, had to do with the religious and social life of Israel. Made up of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Sanhedrin, 70 ruling elders. Now, the Pharisees were the party that was generally linked with conservatism. I'm not talking about America now, I'm talking about first century Israel. So they were religiously and socially conservative. They had great concern about the scriptures and they had great concern about the tradition of the elders. You remember we talked a few weeks ago about what the tradition of the elders were and how important that was to Israel. And the ones that most valued the tradition of the elders were the Pharisees in that culture. And they were really serious about keeping the rules, both from the the Old Testament, the Hebrew Scriptures, and from the, the oral tradition, the tradition of the elders. And they were so serious about keeping it that they saw themselves as doing it differently or perhaps better than anyone else. And so they called themselves the separated ones or the separate ones. That's what Pharisees means, the separate ones. We can perhaps fairly from the Gospels sum up their attitude toward the rest of Israel and toward others in this. Luke chapter 18, verse 11. The Pharisee stood by himself and prayed, God, I thank you that I'm not like other people. You see how they got their name, the separate ones? They're very serious about this. Thank you that I'm not like other people. Robbers, evildoers, adulterers, adulterers, even like this tax collector here. So they had this idea that they were really protecting and upholding the word of God and the oral tradition, the tradition of the elders, and that they were conservative in their understanding of it, and they were extremely enthusiastic in their observation of it, and they were in that a little bit better than everybody else. And perhaps their motives were generally good. I mean, they wanted to get to heaven. They believed in the afterlife. They believed in the resurrection from the dead. And so they thought that the way to to get there was by carefully obeying the rules. Now, the Sadducees. The Sadducees were sort of the liberal party of the day. They were the modernists. If the Pharisees were the traditionalists, the the Sadducees were the modernists or the progressives. They did not believe in the resurrection from the dead, the afterlife, or eternity in heaven. They did have religion, they believed in God, but they thought that it ended when this life ended, and so this life was all that there was. And so they were concerned with things like wealth, power, and influence. So where the Pharisees held themselves aloof, the Sadducees were more activists that got involved. This life is all there is, we better better make a difference now. 
And they were sort of the, the, the wealthy class concerned with politics and social change. But they didn't believe in a resurrection from the dead. That's why they were sad, you see. <laughs> ah, that's a good one, huh? I first heard that like 20 years ago and thought it was just as lame then as it is now. And what's interesting throughout the Gospels, but particularly in this text now, is that these two parties come together in opposition to Jesus. They didn't usually work together, right? They, they were opposed, but they come together here as one in opposition against Jesus. And both of these parties are failing or said more correctly, refusing to recognize who Jesus really is. And Jesus often condemns them throughout the Gospel of Matthew for their attitude and their influence in Israel. And that's what he's doing here. He's condemning their attitude and the influence that they have in Israel. Be on guard, he tells his followers, against the teaching or the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Now, what teaching, when Jesus says that at the close in verse 12, What teaching in particular is he talking about? Because the Pharisees and the Sadducees were considered the teachers of Israel along with the scribes. So they had lots of teachings, lots of things they might have taught. But Jesus says at the end, or the text says at the end, that they were to be aware of the teaching of them. I don't think here what is in mind is a specific singular teaching or one doctrine or one topic necessarily. I think that what is being alluded to here is the way that the Pharisees and Sadducees negatively influenced Israel through their ungodly, unfaithful skepticism about Jesus. The whole tone and the tenor of the way they negatively influenced their culture and their people and those around them with their ungodly, unfaithful skepticism. That's I think the teaching, the the yucky yeast that Jesus is alluding to. Now, let's see how this plays out in our text. It says in verse 1 that they came to test Jesus by asking for a sign from heaven. They want a sign from heaven. Sign in the Gospels is used differently in different places. The word in the book of John, sign, and Jesus performed many signs, was used to talk about something that Jesus did that had deeper spiritual significance. So like he turned water to wine. Was that just about needing more wine or was there a deeper spiritual significance? In the book of John, he always uses it to talk about signs that Jesus did with deeper spiritual lessons or significance. But the synoptic gospels, that is Matthew, Mark, and Luke, use the word to speak of what we might call attesting miracles. Signs that Jesus performed that attested as to who he was testified about his identity as the only unique son of God. So when they say here in the book of Matthew, we want a sign from heaven, they want some miraculous display that will prove to them and everyone else once and for all who Jesus is. Jesus, you say you're the son of God, prove it. You say you're the Messiah, prove it is what they're saying. Give us an attesting miracle. And they say a a sign from heaven. It's interesting that the word heaven is used there because the Sadducees didn't really believe in it. 
And the Greek word for heaven is the same word as sky. So it might be that they're just asking, look, we just, we, we just want to see something that's like God size, something in the sky. Sure, you're doing all this stuff like healing lepers and casting out demons and raising people from the dead and all these things here on earth. Show us something sky sized. We want a sign from heaven, from the sky. I mean, it was Israel. These were the Jews. They might have been thinking of something like what happened in Joshua. You remember in Joshua, when Joshua and Israel were going up to battle against 10 kings coming against them? And God caused the sun to stand still in the midst of the battle. Look at the text from Joshua. Joshua asked, like, God, we need some backup here. And so the sun stood still. And the moon stopped till the nation avenged itself, avenged itself, excuse me, on its enemies. As it is written in the book of Jashar, the sun stopped in the middle of the sky and delayed going down about a full day. There has never been a day like it before or since. A day when the Lord listened to a human being. Surely the Lord was fighting for Israel. Maybe that's the kind of thing they had in mind. Maybe in their mind that that would be an undeniable act of God on behalf of Israel. So I I can see why they were thinking that. Like, give us something God-sized, sky-sized. But there's a clue into the text as to their motive. It says that they came to test Jesus. They weren't coming as Israel should have come, with a posture of true faith. They were coming with an attitude of ungodly skepticism, not even fair skepticism. Jesus had performed many signs, any fair-minded person should have seen, but an ungodly, I would say, evil sort of skepticism. That word test there is usually used in the New Testament with negative connotations. The idea is to test so as to make fail. Signifies that they weren't sincere in their seeking of a sign from the sky. And so Jesus responds to them and their insincere motives and what they're really trying to do and the influence, the ungodly skeptical influence that they were wielding. And he calls them out for knowing how to discern weather patterns, but not being able to discern who Jesus was, right? They knew enough to look and say, well, when the sky's red in the evening, we'll have weather like that. When the sky's red in the morning, we'll have weather like this. You, you guys are like smart enough to see that, but you can't see who I am. Another translation, the the Weiss translation says, you possess indeed an understanding based upon experience to pass a discriminating judgment upon the face of the sky. But on the other hand, with reference to the attesting miracles, aren't you able to pass a discriminating judgment? You guys are so smart about certain things and so dumb about other things. That's, that's my translation right there. Oh, my shoe came untied. Mind if I tie this very quickly? I don't want to trip while preaching. Okay. <clears throat> so Jesus then is sort of pulling the mask off them. We know because Matthew told us they wanted to test Jesus, but Jesus is sort of pulling the mask off them and revealing who they really were. And he says about them in verse 4, a wicked an adulterous generation looks for a sign, but none will be given except the sign of Jonah. This would have been pretty profound in the ears of the hearers that were there. 
right? The disciples, any other crowd, certainly the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They come asking Jesus for this thing. And Jesus says to them explicitly, you guys are acting like wicked and adulterous people as it pertains to your relationship with the God of Israel. You're wicked and you're adulterous because they refused to understand and acknowledge the truth. That's an ungodly skepticism, not an honest sort of skepticism that investigates an ungodly sort of skepticism. And Jesus says, look, I'm going to give you a sign, but it's the sign of Jonah, which we know from a previous interaction is Christ's resurrection from the dead. As Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, and then he came out. So Jesus would be three days and three nights in the belly of the earth, and then he'd be resurrected from the dead. And hence we have Romans chapter 1, verse 4, that says Jesus was declared to be the Son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead. So he said, I will give you a sign. It's the ultimate sign, Christ's resurrection from the dead. So all he says to them, and then it says at the end of verse 4, Jesus left them and went away. Didn't hang around to argue. Wasn't trying to prove who he was. He just said, look, you'll know when I'm risen from the dead. But he left them and went away. Which is interesting because anytime we see sincere faith in the gospels on the behalf of somebody, the last thing Jesus does is leave them. He always responds to sincere faith. Remember the woman a, a couple of script, texts ago, right, who came crying out because her daughter was demon-possessed, and Jesus said, woman, you have great faith, just because she was persistent and asking. Jesus always responds to great faith, but he walks away from these men. And so the issue that surfaces in the text and what we need to learn from is the fact that the spirit of disbelief was pervasive in Israel's culture and had an effect on the disciples. We need to learn from that. The spirit of disbelief was pervasive in Israel's culture because here's the leaders of the people who were forming the spiritual life of Israel, uh, perpetuating it, and it was affecting the followers of Jesus. Unknowingly, I'm sure, but it's affecting the way that they themselves thought about and responded to Jesus. Let's read this funny little action one more time so it's fresh in our mind. Verses 5 through 8. Maybe 9 even. When they went across the lake, the disciples forgot to take the bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. They discussed this among themselves and said, Oh, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus said, You have little faith. Why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Here's a key phrase. Do you still not understand don't you remember? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember? The feeding of the 5,000, he says, and all the leftovers. The feeding of the 4,000 and all the leftovers. Verse 11, how is it you don't understand that I was not talking to you about bread, but be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees? So notice again now in this interaction that Jesus is using conflict language. Be on your guard against what we're now beginning to identify as this negative, disbelieving influence coming from the leaders. Negative, disbelieving influence coming from the leaders. Be on guard against it, Jesus. This is a, a kind of evil. That's, that's the yeast. You, uh, modern culture, we might not know what yeast is. You know what yeast is, right? 
yeast, you put it in the bread, and you only need a tiny bit of... I'm just saying this because I read it in books. I've never baked any bread. But you just need a little tiny bit of yeast, right? And it, and it leavens a whole bunch of dough and then it makes it rise and bake correctly. Who knows? Anyway, the point of yeast in, in biblical imagery is a tiny bit has a really big effect. A tiny bit has a really big effect. So you really got to be careful with yeast. And what was coming from them was this yucky yeast, this faithlessness that caused the disciples not to think right and well about Jesus. It really came down to trusting what they knew to be true about Jesus or not trusting it. Failing to understand in light of what he had already done and to remember who he was and what he was able to do in light of what they have seen. Do you still not understand? Don't you remember? This is a basic, somewhat humorous interaction with profound implications. As we learned, it wasn't about bread at all. It's actually about trust and the followers of Jesus living out of a place of understanding and remembering. It's actually about trust and key phrase, living out of a place of understanding and remembering Jesus, who he is, and what he's done. And it it seems silly to me that the disciples, having just witnessed the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000, somehow think that Jesus is mad about bread with them. Right? That's not lost on you, right? Like, that's a little bit ridiculous. The feeding of the 4,000 was right before this. And then the feeding of the 5,000, just a chapter before. It's interesting the way that they are acting and thinking or not thinking and not acting rightly as it pertains to the relationship with Jesus and who he is and what he's able to do and what he might do according to his character. They're thinking wrongly about that. They're not thinking in light of what Christ has done and who Christ has revealed himself to be. And when they didn't understand, when they didn't remember, then what we see in the boat here is that they begin to see life incorrectly. They just were like thinking about the the, the wrong issue. And they they were thinking about it apart from God. This was what we often call uh, practical atheism, right? An atheist says, "I, I don't believe in God. Christians say, I believe in God. In fact, a particular God, the one true God, the God of the Bible and his son is Jesus Christ, the only unique savior of the world. But sometimes we act like atheists because we don't actually include God. We don't understand and remember who he is, what he's done, what his word has revealed to us in the way that we think and so feel and so act. Right? They weren't really making a Jesus equation out of what he was saying and this bread thing. They're functioning like practical atheists. And what that caused them to do is be fearful about silly things. Listen to me now. To be fearful about silly things. Oh no, it's because we didn't bring any bread. Pete, dude, you were supposed to bring the bread. They're, they're, they're fearful 
about a silly thing rather than hearing and remembering and really understanding what Jesus was saying. So I think what we begin to see in this text is that they had unwittingly been influenced by the culture around them of ungodly skepticism, ungodly disbelief. And who Jesus was, what he had said, what he had done. And therein is the battle. That's why Jesus uses battle grammar. That's why he says over and over, be on guard. And that's why he's trying to open their eyes to like, it might seem like a little thing. It's yeast, but it's really going to affect your whole life and the way that you think and act and feel and as, you, as it pertains to me, God says. That's why he's using battle language. Be on guard. There's this insidious, subtle influence of ungodly disbelief that was clearly affecting them. 2 Peter chapter 2, verse 1 says, But there were also false prophets in Israel, just as there will be false teachers among you. Okay, talking about the church now. They will cleverly teach destructive heresies and even deny the master who brought them. In this way, they will bring sudden destruction upon themselves. So the Pharisees and the Sadducees were introducing in their very attitude toward Jesus the subtle disbelief that was infecting others around them. And notice they were, they, they were part of Israel. They were coming from within Israel. It wasn't like people were coming down from Tyre and Sidon or it wasn't like people were crossing over the Sea of Galilee from Decapolis Gentiles saying, you know, don't believe in Jesus. This was coming from within the house of Israel. And so I, I don't even think the disciples' eyes until they had spent some real time with Jesus would have even been open to it. I don't think they ever would have even thought that until they had walked with Jesus for a few years and heard his truth and seen what he had done. And in the same way, even from within the camp of Christianity, the Bible tells us, there will come false teaching. And unless we are careful to cultivate our witness with Christ and in the word of God, we might be fully unaware of the subtle deception. And therein, God brings to us battle language. Be on guard. Be alert. Might seem like a little thing, but it might have profound implications. And so, part of my pastoral word to us this morning, as the church, as Christians, is this. We need to choose friends, teachers, pastors, leaders, and books that will increase our faith in Jesus and the scriptures, not decrease them. We need to choose friends, professors, pastors, leaders, books, entertainment that will increase our faith, not insidiously, deceptively diminish it. We need to be on guard against yucky yeast. Be on your guard against teaching and influence that doubt God, dismiss Jesus, 
and devalue Scripture. Doubt God, dismiss Jesus, and devalue Scripture. And I'm not talking about from the world necessarily. I'm talking about from within the camp. That's where this was coming. Because there is, again, a real battle for truth. Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. Jesus is the light, and we're called to walk in the light, and we're called to be salt and light. There's a real battle for that. And and what the enemy will always endeavor to do is to malign the truth from within the camp so that what comes out of the camp is perverted and twisted. Right? If he could get it in here and malign it in here, then he doesn't have to worry about out there in the world and broader culture. You understand what I'm saying here? Look what Paul wrote in 1 Timothy 4.1. Now the Holy Spirit tells us clearly that in the last time, some will turn away from the true faith. They will follow deceptive spirits and teachings that come from demons. Now, I, 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 I don't want to be too hard on the Pharisees and the Sadducees, but this was demonic stuff. This attitude that they were spewing into Israel, this was demonic stuff. And again, this is within the camp sort of language. And what's, what's weird about it is that it seems as though, from, from, from what I can tell in this text and perhaps the end, when we get to the cross and everyone in Jerusalem is yelling, crucify him, crucify him, crucify him. And even his disciples abandon him for the most part. It would seem to me that this attitude, this ungodly disbelief, of the Pharisees and the Sadducees was strangely contagious. Strangely contagious. Pervasive. It spread unexpectedly, like yeast does, through a lump of dough. Because here it's affected the way the disciples are thinking in the boat. At the end, it will certainly affect the way that the crowd feels about Jesus as yelling, crucify him. It was strangely contagious. I am sure, I am sure that the Pharisees and the Sadducees were the smartest people in Israel. I'm sure of it. They would have for sure been the most trained, the most educated, the most decorated, had the most things hanging on their wall. But they were also the most wrong. And later on, after the resurrection, in the book of Acts, somewhere around chapter 3, verse 14, says about the disciples that the crowd recognized them as untrained, uneducated men, but they had been with Jesus. I would trade all the education in the world for with Jesus. I'm sure they were the smartest. And their influence was pervasive. It was contagious. It was affecting. So I think my word to the church is we need to be contagious with faithful truth. We need to be contagious and rightly by the Spirit of God, influential with faithful truth. 2 Timothy 4. Preach the word of God. Be prepared whether the time is favorable or not. Patiently correct, rebuke, and encourage your people with good teaching. 
For a time is coming when people will no longer listen to sound and wholesome teaching. They'll follow their own desires and will look for teachers who will tell them whatever their itching ears want to hear. They will reject the truth and chase after myths. But you should keep a clear mind in every situation. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Let me, let me paraphrase that for a moment, or not paraphrase it, but let me hit at the idea of don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Don't be afraid to look like an idiot in our broader culture or Christian culture that casts aspersion on the word of God, the person of Jesus, and who God is by standing firm on God's word, who Christ is, and God himself. Don't be afraid to look like an idiot for Jesus in the Bible. I'll go down on that ship all day long. Listen, I was just talking about this with someone right before church started. The, like the, the New Testament is explicit that there is a day where every Christian will stand before Jesus and give an answer for the way that we live this life. We won't be judged according to our sins. Christ was already judged for us. There is therefore now no condemnation for us. But we will as Christians stand before Jesus and give an account for the way that we lived our lives as followers of him on mission with him. A day of reckoning for that. And I would rather stand before Jesus and have him to say to me, you know what, Britt? You believed too much. You just trusted the Bible too much. I can deal with that. As opposed to, why did you reject what I said about sexuality in my word? Why did you reject what I said about creation in my word? Why did you reject what I said about sin and humanity in my word? I'd rather stand before God and have him say, Brett, you believe too much than you didn't believe enough. And that's what he says to the disciples. Why are you still lacking faith? Don't you understand? Don't you remember? Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. By the way, I I don't think he's going to say that to me on that day. (laughs) I don't think I believe too much. Don't be afraid of suffering for the Lord. Work at telling others the good news and fully carry out the ministry that God has given you. So part of the call in the Jesus followers, us, is to be contagious with the truth, right? Um, um, uh, Amongst ourselves, we're we're people of the truth who walk in the light. We're we're people of the word. Be, Be contagious with each other, building each other up, and then that will have a cumulative net sort of positive effect on the world around us. But let's work hard on being contagious with true truth, with faithful biblical truth here. Let's surround ourselves with influence that build up faith and trust, not seek to erode it. So the little tiny book of Jude, only one chapter, tells us, but you, my dear friends, must remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ predicted. They told you that in the last times there would be scoffers, whose purpose in life is to satisfy their ungodly desires. These people are the ones who are creating divisions among you. They follow their natural instincts because they don't have God's spirit in them. But you, dear friends, must build each other up in your most holy faith and pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. There's good Christian fellowship right there. Build each other up in the most holy faith and pray in the power of the Spirit. What have we just endeavored to do that this week?
as followers of Jesus in a community together? What if we just said, okay, this week with the Christians that I'm interacting with, I'm going I'm to seek to build you up in your faith. I, I'm going to help you to understand and to remember who Jesus is and what he's done, what the word of God says. Understand and remember and pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. I'm not even sure exactly what that means, but I know it's good. To pray in the power of the Holy Spirit. Now we need each other, yeah, other Fonre, absolutely. And, and we need each other because it's a real battle. The struggle is real. Scriptures are explicit about that. And finishing with this, what faithless lie, what, what faithlessness does is lives out of fear and misses Jesus. But faith lives out of trust and sees Christ as present with us. Now in the good times, that might not seem profound. In the bad times, that's everything. What faithlessness does is lives out of fear and misses Jesus, right? Doesn't understand, doesn't remember. What faith does is trusts and sees Christ as present with us. Functioning is what we're meant to do. Functioning from a place of trust in what we know about Jesus. Understanding and remembering. Again, this becomes so real in the hard times because we sometimes feel as though we've been forsaken by God or or God isn't present or he doesn't hear or he's not with us or he's failed us. But that's not what the scriptures tell us. That hasn't been the experience with the God of Israel or the experience of Jesus. So when times are sketchy, we got to fall back on what we know, not live out of what we don't know. That he is Emmanuel, God with us, and he's faithful. He's faithful to complete the work that he's begun in you. So live out of that place that God is faithful. I might not have bread, but Jesus fed the 5,000 and then the 4,000 and there were leftovers. And he himself is the bread of life. And I'm praying today, God, give me this day my daily bread. And he's faithful. We've got to understand and remember that God loves us. And the evidence of that, the inconvertible proof of that is the cross of Jesus Christ. You can never doubt again that God loves you for he gave his son to die for you on the cross. There's nothing more he could ever do to prove his love for us. It becomes really important in hard times. I am the beloved of God. He's a good, good father. Loves me. Gave himself for me. And, and to be faithless is to live in a sense uh, that these things aren't real, to not understand, to not remember. And that, that causes real dissonance, difficulty, insecurity, fear, and pain as we walk through life, as opposed to the abundant life that Jesus has for us. Understand and remember. Build each other up in the most holy faith. I like the warning of Proverbs. Tune your ears to wisdom and concentrate on understanding. Cry out for insight and ask for understanding. Search for them as you would for silver. Seek for them like hidden treasures. Then you will understand what it means to fear the Lord and you will gain knowledge of God. 
For the Lord grants wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. For wisdom will enter your heart and knowledge will fill you with joy. Wise choices watch over you. Understanding will keep you safe. Understand and remember. There are some things in life that we don't have control over. There are other things in life that we can control. Our influences, the wells from which we drink, the opinions to which we give weight, the friends, the professors, the pastors, the teachers, the books. Faithful to God. Surround yourselves with faithful influences and be a person of faith that influences faithfulness and fidelity to God and his word. Because Jesus, our Lord and Savior, is called the faithful and true witness. He is a faithful and true witness. Go hard after him in faithfulness and in truth. Amen? Thank you, Lord, for your faithful and true word this morning and for, I don't know, Lord, maybe like a, Maybe it's eye-opening or a warning or a reminder to understand and to remember what your word has said and who you are and what you've done. Help us to do that. God, would you please, Jesus, as you did for the disciples that day in the boat, would you show us little bits of leaven that we need to be aware of? Yeast that we need to be cognizant of, that we need to reject or repent of or just remove ourselves from the influence of. And help us, Holy Spirit, to think rightly on Jesus, to understand and to remember who he is and what he's done for us. Our lives are crazy, Lord. You know that. You know our comings and our goings. But you are faithful and true. And we need the help of the Spirit to think rightly on Christ and to cling to Christ. So help us do it this day. In Jesus' name, amen.